we uh, always enjoy getting to be with you here at uh, Crossroads and grateful for what God's doing here in your congregation. If you would uh, turn to Matthew 22, that's where our message will be from today. I've been thinking about this uh, passage for weeks and weeks. I've been slowly reading through uh, the Gospel of Matthew in my own Bible reading time, and uh, this passage, when I uh, read it, it made me think you know, quite a lot. And so I was grateful to get to dig into it deeper and share the passage here. Matthew 22, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. And uh, I titled this message, The Great Invitation. It, um, it's a parable that Jesus gave that is uh, unique, but it appears in other Gospels, maybe in a little bit different uh, form as well. Matthew 22, there the Bible uh, says, begin with verse number 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are all killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the, the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we're grateful for the Bible and how it causes us to think deeply about important realities that you have revealed and truths that you want us to understand. So we pray that you'll speak to us from your word today by your spirit and help us as we think about this passage and apply it to our lives. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. amen. I'll tell you how I read this passage in, uh, when I read it the first time and, and how, it, uh, how it impressed me. A king gives a a we, uh, he's invited guests to his son's wedding. He sends out his servants, which means that he's confirming really an invitation that's already been sent. So he sends out his servants to confirm that the guests are coming and they don't want to come to his son's wedding. So he, he sends out servants a second time to encourage them, come to my son's wedding. So this time, not only do they not want to come, but they begin to react violently to the invitation. Some of them do. And the king treats them the way he's been treated. He uh, turns violence, returns violence for violence. 
And then he extends the invitation, okay, well, the first people I invited uh, didn't come, so he invites others to the wedding, and they come, and the banquet hall is filled, and so he goes out and he examines the guests, and he finds someone there who's not properly dressed, and he has him tied up hand and feet and thrown out. And and the first impression that I had of this uh, story was, what's wrong with this king? You know, he invites all these people. Some don't want to come. Finally, some people do come. And he finds one of those guys and says, you're, you're going to be thrown out. You're not welcome. That was the way it impressed me until I started digging into the story. And so I think this is really one of those cases where when we, when we read the passage, we've got to go a little deeper and look at some of the customs of the times to, to really get a handle on it. It helped me a lot. Probably all of us know the feeling of having been invited to some big formal event that maybe you are excited about, but maybe not. Formal usually throws me. That's the first thing. Is like, I don't want to put on you know a tie and go anywhere for the most part. But uh, you know, I've been to many graduation uh, ceremonies, and none of them were fun, if I'm honest. I mean, because you know, like if you go to graduation in Effingham County. And you go to the high school, of course, you have to park a mile away, right? And you have to get there three hours early and compete with other people for parking and help you if you've got an elderly person that you're trying to get in there to be seated with others. And then you get inside and people are saving seats for other people and that sort of thing. It's just like you want to honor the person, but if you're truthful, you'd rather just send them money and not go, <laughs> buy them some present or gift and not... not not show up in person yourself. And, you know, we've had the same experience with weddings where people, we want, we want to honor these people and we want to celebrate their big day, but they scheduled it on the day of the rivalry football game for your favorite <laughs> college team. You know, so Georgia is playing Florida or Alabama is playing Auburn. And who does that? You know, who puts their wedding on the day of, you know, the college rivalry game? So. It's going to, I'm giving you a man perspective, okay, on weddings and formal events. But it's, when we think about events like that, it's hours and hours. It's inconvenient. Am I right? Mm -hmm. it, it puts us out. We have to put on clothes that are uncomfortable usually for a little while. And we, we know that if we say yes, it's a big commitment. We know that it's going to uh, take us out of our routines. It's going to be disruptive, at least for part of a day. I facilitate, uh, or I'm ordained minister, okay, so I perform uh, wedding ceremonies for people, and it, it's, that's an even bigger level you know, <laughs> you know, of involvement with people on their big day where they're nervous wreck and all those things. but. You know, we just know saying yes is going to be disruptive. It's a big commitment. Well, Craig S. Keener wrote a great commentary on manners and customs of Bible times. It's really one of the best ones I've ever seen because he does verse by verse through the New Testament. He says in their day, when you were invited to this, the kind of wedding uh, banquet that's in mind here, it might have been as much as a seven-day commitment. Seven days. Not, not part of one day, but seven whole days. 
And so when you understand it that way, you start to see why the people behaved the way they did. And there are some other details that, I, that we'll work through in the passage, but you can see why they were hesitant to agree because it's not just a little disruption, it's a big disruption, it's a huge commitment. And this story that Jesus has given to us in Matthew here shows us that God uh, has a kingdom. He compares the kingdom of God here to a great wedding banquet. And, and his son is to be married, and there's an invitation that's being issued, and the passage is going to cause us to think about God's goodness, God's sovereignty. It's going to make us think about the seriousness of responding to an invitation that has been issued by God already, and it also causes us to think about the limits of our life as humans and our freedom. You know, we like to think of our freedom in a way that maybe the Bible wouldn't affirm. Our freedom has limits. And so when we read this passage, those are some of the, the truths that appear. So to begin with, in verses 1 through 4 in this passage, we see that an invitation has been received. It's been sent out and already received by the people and when you read uh, verse 1, the first thing it says, Jesus answered and spoke to them, to them. That's important. Who is he talking to here? Well, when I re read through and am reading through Matthew, what you find is that when you, the, the, uh, his interaction with religious leaders gets more and more intense and more, more and more, uh, they're more aggressive toward him. And there's more disagreement as things are proceeding toward the cross, toward Calvary, and toward Jesus' crucifixion. And so he has these tense interactions. Often they, the uh, religious leaders, the Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians, the, the uh, religious leaders of his day would come to him with trick questions. They would say things to him like, uh, uh, should we pay taxes to the government? And he, you know, of course, takes the coin. He says, whose image is on it? And they say, well, that's a picture of Caesar. He says, well, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and the things that belong to God. And he just blows them out of the water. You know? So there, he has all these kinds of interactions. And the Pharisees, he has pointed uh, conversations. And he uses stories like this because stories sometimes can create a sort of a, a softening and a, a capacity for someone to hear. And so he takes this story. But this isn't an easy story for them to digest either. And, and, but he shows them, them their self often in the, the parables and the stories. And the word Pharisee, when you hear it, does it have a positive or a negative connotation? It's negative, right? We think of the Pharisee as the strict religionist and the person who uh, has no mercy and the person who's only concerned about the rigid, you know, formal realities of the law, but no mercy and no grace. And, and, uh, but it's also interesting, I was listening to uh, Philip Yancey, who's a Christian writer I enjoy quite a lot, listened to a podcast, and he said the hinge missionary that God used to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world called himself in Philippians chapter 3 a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I'd never really thought of that, but Paul, who God used 
as a missionary of grace and to take the good news of God's mercy and his invitation to people describes himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And the thing that that said to me is when Jesus gave these stories, I don't believe that he was just trying to be uh, callous or hateful or spiteful. I believe God really hoped that these people would experience a softening of their heart and would be able to understand who he was and to accept God on his own terms rather than in the ways that they, they had uh, interacted and understood you know, God imp imp improperly. The parable that we've read teaches what the kingdom of heaven is like. Some of the elements of this are really easy to get. The king is obviously God, right? The son is obviously Jesus in the story, I would say. And the people that are invited are obviously Israel. I think when you read the story in context, this is what we, we see. The people that have been invited are the, the people of Israel. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to work through some of those things. The feast is going to take a significant commitment on the people's part. They would be taken away from work. You see that in the story. When they decline to come, what do they do? One guy goes to his farm, another guy goes to his business. And so they've chosen something right in front of them instead of something for them that seemed like it would make their life inconvenient and would require a, a lot of commitment. And it, again, to me, that it doesn't take a lot to make an application of that from uh, the story to ourselves, right? We know that to follow Christ is going to be a disruptive decision. It's going to change the course of your life. It's going to put you in a different uh, mode and cause your commitments to look different than they have looked in the past. And so we can see how this applies into our own story and our own life. Their routines were going to be interrupted. On the other hand, in their context, refusing to go to the wedding wasn't just a social uh, this kind of thing because this was not a democracy. They, don't, they didn't live in a democracy. You live in a democracy. You live in a world where you might make a social choice that has relational implications. That person might be angry at you and they won't invite you to Christmas or whatever. But that's not what is going on in this story. This is a king and these are his subjects. And so for them to reject the invitation from the king was political insubordination. It was really what they were saying was that we have tr treasonous feelings in our heart toward you as king. We don't honor you. We don't want to come to your wedding. We wish you didn't rule over us. In fact, in other parables, Jesus says that he has those words come out of the subjects toward the king. And not in this one, but in other parables. We don't want this man ruling over us. And, and so, again, we're looking at this story. The king, obviously, is God. The people are Israel, but not only Israel. Really, as it goes out, it turns out that it's everybody. And so it's picturing people in their posture toward, toward God, whether or not we will receive his invitation. And so some, one writer said that the... the their behavior was scandalously rude, is the way it's put. And the, even the people that heard Jesus give this parable in the beginning would have felt incensed at the unbelievable stupidity of the 
respondees, the invitees. They would have not understood how they could be so stupid as to behave in the way that they were. Which puts all this in a completely different light for me than what the way I reg, originally read the story, just honestly, you know, my first glance. The banquet they've been invited to, uh, if you turned over to Revelation 19, uh, verse 7, I'll, and I'll, I'll read what it says there. It's interesting, this is John in Revelation 19, verse 7. says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's important to hold on to. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And so it gives us a sense of what is this banquet about. You know, in the story it's obvious. The son is getting married. They, you know, he's killed oxen and he's prepared a, a great fine dinner for all these guests. But... In the scripture, it symbolizes the blessing of salvation, the invitation to enter into true life. And it's pictured as a big party, a wedding banquet. So we're being invited into this kind of life. That's the idea. Verse uh, 4 in this passage that we've read in Matthew 22 says, Again, he sent other servants. So it, it, we see God's persistence in his pursuit of people, his invitation to us to enter into the life that he's given to us in Jesus, that he's made available to us through Jesus, Jesus Christ. And it shows his uh, generosity as well. He pursues these people even though at first they're, they've re flatly rejected the invitation to come. So he extends the invitation to them again. It shows that he's generous in the way that he pursues people. One writer, a guy named Francis Thompson, wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. Maybe you've heard of that. But he pictures God as the hound of heaven, the one who pursues us, who wants us to respond to his invitation and to come to him. But we see the invitation is received. Then we see in the passage, verses 5 through 7, the invitation is rejected by the people. The people refuse with callous indifference. And their personal uh, vocational issues and commitments stood between them and this invitation and so we can see this application I you know I think about how we appear in the story here if our uh, values push God to the margin and we we maybe have been that kind of person or know that kind of person I'm just too busy for to put God first in my life that's idolatry in a nutshell you know this decision that's pictured here to go to the temporal, to reject what has spiritual and eternal uh, implications, it, it makes an idol of, of something that can't sustain and give happiness and give meaning in life. If it's our job or the pursuit of wealth or anything that we put in competition with God and it becomes ultimate, in our life, that is a problem. And so we see that in the story, that, that that's how people are responding to the invitation. To, we have to think about the context in uh, the story of who Jesus is talking to again, the people of Israel. And this is a clear foreshadowing 
Jesus has already told his disciples, he continues to tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed by the chief priests and crucified, and on the third day I'll rise again. So they know all this in, uh, at some level. They haven't really internalized it, but they know it at some level. And so this is the context that there's, uh, that there's a... You, you, later on when you read into Matthew, you see that the, uh, they plot, they plan. Judas, uh, one of Jesus' followers, becomes involved in that plot to betray Jesus. And it, when you read it, you see that for two days he was seeking an opportunity to, to betray Jesus. And then finally it happens in God's timing. But Jesus is showing them, he's holding up a mirror to them of who they are. And he, he's helping them to think about the fact that they persecute the prophets. The, when he sends out his messengers, that's a picture of who they are. You, every time Jesus sent, sent prophets, it says they pers the Bible shows that they persecuted them. And then later they would not only persecute Jesus, but murder him, crucify him. And after Jesus is raised from the dead, even, we see in the book of Acts the story of Stephen, the first martyr, who this is, uh, he preaches the same message, basically, that's in this parable. And he says, you're the ones that always persecuted the prophets and God's messengers and even crucified Jesus. And when Stephen said that, this is what the book of Acts says. They, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. They yelled, <coughs> excuse me, at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. So Jesus is holding up this mirror. This is you. This is what you do to the prophets that I send out to you rather than Receiving the invitation, this is how you behave toward my purpose and my, and my plan. Then the king's response to the treatment of his messengers that originally when I read it, I'm like, wow, these people just said no to a wedding and you're going to burn their city down. But they did more than that. They, you know, in the story even, they, they killed and mistreated and killed his messengers. And so a lot of times when we read the Bible, uh, it's difficult for people to understand God is judge, but he's the only righteous person in the universe. The only one. The only just one. The only one capable of making just judgments. And so in the story, he judges justly. And it reminds us that God is the Lord. And vengeance belongs to God. In fact, that's what he says to us. He says, don't take vengeance into your hands. I'm the Lord. I'll repay. Vengeance belongs to me. This passage probably looked ahead to the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. That Jesus, you remember, he, he, uh, the disciples say, they point out the temple to him and he says, not one stone will be left on top of another. And the Romans came in after uh, Jesus had been resurrected and the gospel began to move out into the non-Jewish world and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so when he talks about the burning of their city and the destruction, it, it's really prophetic. It's really Jesus looking ahead. So the invitation has been received, the invitation has been rejected, and then we see that it's reissued. The invitation is reissued in verses 8 through 10 in this passage. 
the guests who rejected the invitation were called unworthy. He says the first invitation that went out, the guests that were sent to were unworthy. Something lavish and free has been offered to them, and they aggressively declined it. And so the king says, whoever you uh, meet, invite that person to the feast. Go now into the highways and the byways. Leave out the fancy places and the rich people, and let's go to everybody now. And Leon Morris, who's written a great commentary on Matthew, says that uh, this is a picture of a different and unexpected people of God who take the place of those who fail to respond. And when you read the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, that's what you see, is that the movement of the gospel goes from Jerusalem into the, the uh, non-Jewish world. It, go, it starts to go into Asia, and it starts to go into Europe. And it's what we're also seeing reflected in the story in the way that, that Jesus is telling it. God's invitation does, doesn't discriminate. I'm, I'm glad that's God's heart, you know. It should be our heart, too. But the Bible says that in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God doesn't discriminate. There's no person that God's love hasn't been extended to and that the gospel is a valid invitation to. First John chapter 2, verse 2 says that the, um, he, Jesus became the propitiation for our sins, which is not an everyday kind of word, but it means the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And there it says, not for ours only but also for the whole world there. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So his invitation you know, goes out. It finds a broader audience, which is what God's purpose was from the very first when you read through Genesis, because he said to Abraham that in your offspring, in your offspring, in your seed, he says, I'll bless all the nations of the earth. So the gospel was always intended to go out in that, in that way, and we see the progress of it in this story. So they went out, it says, and they gathered everyone that they found. I thought there's a good uh, place here for an application to us today as followers of Christ. I think a missing ingredient sometimes in our Christian understanding is the reality that God wants to use our lives and voices to invite others into his family and into relationship with him. Uh, one thing I've noticed now at this time in our history is that we have left off going. We, we have a high value for gathering, but the going part of it, we don't do so well. And the inviting part of it, we've forgotten that God's commissioned us. We're like the people in this story that God sends out. And, he, I think that the best way to understand this is, is the way it's always been, really, is God puts us in circles of influence where we have family and where we have neighbors and coworkers and friends. And sometimes we think in heroic terms, if you know what I mean, about the way witness and our Christian life looks, but I think really it's more down into the everyday. If we think about it, uh, you've got people that you're connected to all the time that God just wants to use your witness and your voice. Your worship is, is vital to come and worship. 
to make, make it plain that we, you know, we exalt God above everything. But then your witness, that's part of this story too, that God used people to, to be witnesses. And so I, I hope we can recapture that. Our uh, country certainly needs it. You know, our neighbors need it. Our families need that for us to be people who are bold enough just to tell our story. You know, and telling your story is, um, it's so authentic and, and uh, there's so much authority in it because you're, you know what happened to you, right? You know how Jesus changed your, your life and he changed your destiny and he changed, changed you. And, and so we've got a story to tell. The invitation is reissued. It goes out to another group. But then this is the, you know, the ironic part of this story. The invitation is refined. It is ironic. Verses 11 through 14, the invitation is refined. The, most, the, the king, after these guests are assembled, as we saw, he goes in, he, he examines the guests, he finds a person who's not dressed properly for a wedding. So he excludes him, binds him, hands and feet, throws him out. So the most obvious biblical explanation of this part of the passage is found in Isaiah uh, and other places. But you remember how Isaiah said, "All our righteousness is all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags," is the way the way he puts it. Or all our righteousness, one translation says, are like a polluted garment, or like a polluted garment. Isaiah sixty-one ten says, "For he has clothed me." with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And remember that this story is telling us something spiritual. It's helping us have an understanding of what it means to be invited into the banquet, into salvation. And so this is where we begin to see God's sovereignty in this story. That What's explained here is the biblical idea of imputed righteousness imputed righteousness and uh, you see it expressed this way in 2 Corinthians 5 21 it says he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him he made him who knew no sin who is that well that's the son right he made the son to be sin for us the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he, he imputes righteousness as a free gift. And he gives us the appropriate garment, the covering, the clothing. He gives us righteousness. And the only righteous one extends righteousness as a free gift and grace to us. The king says to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The, the word he uses for friend there is an unusual word. It usually is used of those whose actions run contrary to what the term implies. It's like saying, fellow, dude, how did you get in here dressed that way? You know the way that you're dressed is not appropriate for the occasion. And so the, the king is sovereign God in the story. Jesus is trying to show us what God is like. There's no argument the reveler could make. He had no argument for the situation. He's in the wrong. The way he is dressed is just another form of sedition. It was sedition when the others declined the invitation from the king. And the way he's dressed in the story is what it's trying to tell us. It's just, his behavior is another form of sedition. It's just another way of saying, I'm here 
I'm at this wedding, but in my heart, I'm really not. His behavior is, is uh, rebellion. No one gets to the king's banquet without change. That's the idea of the scripture. We can't persist in our rebellion. The only way that we come into relationship with God is to stop being rebels. Is to lay down our arms and to accept his rule over our life. And when you melt the, all the excuses down for us, a lot of times that's what keeps people at arm's length from God. It's nothing more than rebellion in the human heart that says, I want to be the person in charge of all of these things. I want to call this. I, I'm not going to make that commitment. I'm not going to deliberately order my life this way. It's a refusal to let God be who he is, to let God be God in, in our lives. And we, can, we, we can't persist in our rebellion. It's our uh, ways that got us into this mess to begin with. Our ways got us into this mess. We can't keep doing things our way. And so that's the idea of repentance and change in the life of a follower of Christ. And then this, the, you know, you read a lot of Jesus' parables that he doesn't give a clear application. He'll tell stories, and then the disciples later on will go, hey, we have no idea what you're talking about. Help us out here. And he will sometimes give them a clear, uh, you know, understanding of what the story meant. The parable of the soils is an example of that when it's told the disciples are like, you know, make this. But here... Jesus gives a clear application of what he's saying. He says, many uh, are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are chosen. 1 Peter 2.9 says of the redeemed of God, but you, listen to what it says, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's interesting when you contrast that passage with this story because on the one hand, the people who he says about you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's people, he says you've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. But of those who rejected the invitation, it says they'd be bound hand and feet and thrown into outer darkness. The, the uh, invitation brings us out of darkness into light. The rejection takes us out of the possibility of connection and light and puts us into darkness and away from God. And it's a terrifying thought in, in this passage. Those who were not chosen in the story also rejected the invitation. That's interesting to me. The people who were not chosen also rejected the invitation. They were unwilling and they were not chosen, according to the way the story is given by Jesus. I'd say this, you know, sometimes when I was at, uh, in seminary, people were always arguing about God's sovereignty and free will. Get, and free will. Human free will, God's sovereignty. Guess what? People are still arguing about God's sovereignty and free will. And you, we talk about Calvinism and we're talking about... Uh, Arminianism and those kinds of things. But here's what I would say. Respond to Christ's invitation and leave the theological mystery to God. 
if you can't accept mystery, you can't accept God because there, there's always going to be way more to God than you can understand or you've got a false God that you've made up. Respond to God's invitation and leave the mystery to, to God. I, I'm not saying don't love God with your intellect. Try to understand things as much as you can. But the thing that's going to matter most in the end is whether or not when the invitation went out, you said yes. You came to Christ. I would say it's important to remember what the Scripture says. It is a dreadful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to find, fall into the hands of the living God. You, there will be all kinds of invitations for us in our life, some that are trivial, that, uh, you, you know, maybe it's okay to blow off. You send a gift and it's okay and things will work out. And they don't have real consequences, but there are others like the one that we've read about in this story that declining this invitation has significant repercussions. God is inviting us to come to his great banquet. He's invited us into this kind of, uh, this kind of life. The price of saying yes is costly. That's what we saw in the story. Sometimes I think we overlook that. We get these ideas about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Well, if I follow Christ, my life is now going to be simple and easy. <laughs> but we, you know, we know that that's not the case. The price of saying yes uh, sometimes brings, makes life a little more complicated. It's more complicated because we've chosen a pathway that most people in the world are rejecting and saying no to. We have chosen to believe things that sometimes other people think are absurd. We've chose to uh, commit our life to, to Christ and to worship and to witness. And, uh, you know, other people around us are maybe going to scoff and not take us seriously. And, and so we, we, we bring ourselves into a, a relationship that has a prize to it. That we should, you know, Jesus himself said, count the cost. Take up your cross daily, he says, and follow me. And we, we live in a social situation at times where, you know, the hardest part of following Christ may be just to love our enemies. Maybe to take seriously the command that Jesus gives to us not to hate, not to return hate for hate. So when we say yes to Jesus, it's really not a way of simplifying our life. It's just a way of entering into real life, the life that we were created for. And there's nothing that a person could do in this life that's worse than saying no to the invitation. And I think that's what the story is intended to show us, is that every person God is inviting, God is saying, I want you at this banquet. I want you in my family. I want you connected. I want you in light. I want you to have life. And I know that probably this room today, you know, my assumption is that everyone has responded positively to that invitation. But if not, then the, the uh, implication of this is clear. If you have responded positively to the invitation, then the other part that we talked about today, I think we should think seriously about, that is how God wants to use you to bring people into relationship with him. Your conversations, your voice, your life, your story. That's what's going to change your neighbor, and, and it's going to change the people that God's put into your, your life. Well, as always, it's a joy to 
come and to be with you and to help us think about God's Word. And I want to pray for us. We'll dismiss this time of our service. If I can help you with a question or uh, spend a little time with you today with any issue for counsel, I'll be happy to do that. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the Bible and the truths that it reveals to us. I thank you for this story that Jesus left us with to ponder and to apply and to uh, understand as um, a way of life. And I pray for us that you'll help us. I pray for anyone as they've listened to uh, need to come into relationship with you or maybe as they listen to a recording of this that they'll, they'll seriously respond to your invitation and set aside their excuses. And I pray, God, for us that you'll help us to find courage to talk about these truths, to help people see that there's more to life than their everyday nine to five and the things that uh, take priority, that they'll give you first place, that they'll come to you and receive the forgiveness that you offer because Jesus died and was buried. He took our sin upon himself, but he was resurrected to give us hope and to give meaning to this life. And God, thank you that anyone that calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And we thank you for hearing our prayer, and we make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bobby.